You are listening to the teaching ministries of Southwest Church, located in the heart of Springboro, Ohio, at 150 Remick Boulevard, beside the Kaufman Family YMCA. Please visit our website at www.southwestchurch.org. Thank you for joining us for this week's message from Senior Minister Roger Hendricks. Although I'm not a movie critic, by far this was my favorite of the four movies that we've highlighted this summer. So in my opinion, we've saved the best for last. One effect that this movie had on me personally was that I was humbled in regard to uh, just my knowledge and my understanding of World War II history. You see, prior to seeing this movie, Dunkirk, I considered myself very well informed concerning this worldwide war that impacted a previous generation. You have to understand that from a very young age, I've been fascinated with many of the things that pertain to World War II. In fact, because of that, uh, when I was in high school and then in college, I took German, okay, because I wanted to be able to understand uh, TV shows like Hogan's Heroes and some of the things that were said or movies like Patton or Kelly's Heroes. Uh, I wanted to understand uh, some of those German phrases and how that came to play. When I was a college student, uh, I had a pretty rigorous uh, uh, course load, and yet one of the electives I took, I took World War II history because I was fascinated with it. And then as an adult, I've enjoyed watching uh, movies like Band of Brothers and Pacific multiple times. Yet with all that said, I found myself a bit confused or uninformed as the Dunkirk movie began. I think this is for a number of reasons, mainly that this movie deals with a very important battle before the United States entered the war. This was a powerful reminder to me as an American that I tend to look at the world through American lenses. Those are the only lenses that I have growing up here. And that sometimes I can forget a larger world perspective. So please bear with me as I give a very brief description of the historical context of this movie because I think it'll make some of the applications we make hopefully more powerful for you. By the way, I've been concerned throughout this series that as I uh, lean in and talk a little about, about some of the themes of this movie that I possibly would be guilty of, uh, of ruining the movie for you, giving a spoiler alerts, uh, and uh, because this is new territory for me. Usually uh, when new movies come out, I don't see them. I hear about it before I see it, and typically Jay and I, my wife and I, don't watch it until uh, it, it comes out at Redbox or Amazon Prime or uh, Network TV or something like that. But because I'm watching these soon as they're released, I, I want to make sure I don't spill the beans, if you will, for you. And yet, I, I, I believe that if I share some things from the historical background of this movie, that it'll even help you if you decide to go see it. This movie concerns a very important and strategic battle toward the end of May 1940. Now, for historical reference, Pearl Harbor uh, when we entered the world uh, war, wasn't bombed until December 1941. So almost 18 months prior to the United States entering the war, 
this battle occurred. The German Nazi army had attacked Belgium and France, and Britain had entered the war to help defend those two countries in Western Europe. Unfortunately, as the battle lines were drawn in Belgium and France, unbeknownst to the British, the Belgium army had surrendered to Germany, which meant that the original battle plan collapsed almost immediately. Very quickly, the British and the French armies were pushed to the very coast of France, being totally surrounded by the German army at Dunkirk. With this as a backdrop for a movie, let's make a parallel to our reading of the Bible. You see, it's easy for us, just like it would be easy to go to a movie like Dunkirk, to find ourselves immersed in a story that we don't understand the historical context. Even though sometimes we can read and research the history of the period of time that the Bible was written, we can still find ourselves curious about certain scenes that unfold that are told in Scripture. That is the case as we try to unpack one particular book of the Bible, a book entitled 2 Corinthians. And you probably guessed that this was the second letter written to this church in Corinth from the Apostle Paul. This is a letter that's sometimes overlooked, and yet I find it fascinating. In fact, personally, the letter to 2 Corinthians is my favorite of all of Paul's letters because I believe in this letter you really see the heart of the Apostle. You really see what made him tick in some of his own struggles. As the letter begins, Paul writes these words in 2 Corinthians 1, beginning in verse 8. He says, We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, about the troubles we experience in the province of Asia. We were under great pressure, far beyond our ability to endure, so that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we had felt we had received the sentence of death. But this happened that we might not rely on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. Wow, as we start reading this letter, it's, it's pretty dark. It's pretty downcast. As one commentator described, it's, it's quite a switch because if you read the end of the first letter that Paul wrote to the Corinthians, it, he ends the letter with a very upbeat tone. And, and in fact, in chapter 15, which is a very long chapter of 1 Corinthians, he describes the resurrection and the hope and, and the power that the resurrection brings to our lives. So, so he ends the letter with a very upbeat manner, but then he starts 2 Corinthians dejected and describing this sentence of death he felt in his own life. I was trying to think of a parallel for us to try to wrestle with this and how this would play out for us. It would be like one of our friends here at Southwest we see on a weekend, and the last time we see them, we're talking to them out in the lobby following a worship gathering, and they're smiling, and they're happy, and, and, and they seem to just have a zest for life. And in fact, in fact, as they walk away, we just think, wow, that's a picture of health right there. And then the next time we see them, They walk into the lobby on crutches and with bandages and bruises all over their face. And we would wonder, what happened? Why the switch? That's kind of how scholars have approached 2 Corinthians. What happened to Paul? 
Why did he go from being upbeat to dejected? You know, there's been all kinds of theories. Possibly he'd had a physical illness that had left him discouraged. Some have suggested possibly he'd had even a struggle with mental health. And because of that, maybe he'd battled depression or some other type of internal struggle with personal demons at play. Or possibly outside of himself, he had experienced some intense persecution in one of his missionary journeys in between letters, maybe in a place like Ephesus where we know that he met opposition. We're not sure what it was. We'll probably never know. And yet there's no question there's been a change. So so let's keep reading in this letter to learn the important battle reminders for the uninformed. Just like we're a little bit uninformed of what happened to Paul, Maybe like some people felt when they walked into the movie Dunkirk, a little uninformed about the historical context. And yet with all that said, I think we can learn from some of the things that Paul goes on to say in 2 Corinthians 4. Let's keep reading as he continues this somewhat melancholy letter. In in verse 1 of 2 Corinthians 4, he says, Therefore, since through God's mercy, we have this ministry. He talked about that in chapter 3, the ministry he had as an apostle. He said, we do not lose heart. Whether, rather, we have renounced secret and shameful ways. We do not use deception, nor do we distort the word of God. On the contrary, by setting forth the truth plainly, we commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. We see here an important an important description of the spiritual battle that we see played out over and over again in life. The apostle describes spiritual forces at play. When he describes individuals who are spiritually blinded by the God of this age. Now, some of you may be wondering, who's he describing when he talks about the God of this age? The New Living Translation in verse 4, which is the last sentence of that paragraph, actually translates the, the evil one or Satan is at work. I think one of the reasons why I feel so drawn to the history of World War II is that in many ways, it's the last war, at least in my opinion, that there were some clearly drawn lines between evil and good. And yet I'm not sure after researching uh, the history and the backdrop of what led to the war, I'm not sure that that was clear to the people who lived in Germany during the 20s and 30s when the Nazis took power. And yet from our perspective and from the perspective of history, we can definitely see the evil forces that were at play. This passage here in 2 Corinthians points out the same can be true in our spiritual lives. The evil one who is described as the God, you notice the lowercase g, that he is at work to blind the minds of people so that they cannot see the truth of God. We continue to see him at work, the evil one. 
in our world in 2017. You see, it's so easy for us to allow our spiritual hearts to be hardened by sin in our lives. And here's the insidious aspect of this, that this sin can be something that this world, our culture defines as typically normal. It could be a sin of our heart, a sin like greed or selfish ambition or lust or resentment or unforgiving spirit that totally hardens our heart and and blinds us spiritually. It could be a practice that the Bible describes as sinful or immoral, and yet we find ourselves and we find our culture excusing certain behavior that the Bible clearly describes as sin. Paul says, if we are spiritually uninformed, this spiritual blindness can prevent us from seeing the truth of God's word. And we can miss out on developing and deepening our faith in God. Maybe some of you have experienced that in your own life and in your own heart. Maybe you've experienced difficulty developing faith or deepening your faith in God. If that's the case for you, then I want to suggest and want to encourage you to ask you, is there some kind of attitude? Is there some kind of behavior, some kind of practice in your life that's hardening your heart and blinding your eyes? Well, the apostle Paul continues with this answer for the spiritual blindness that he saw in his world, and I think we still can see today. He writes in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 5, he says, for what we preach is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, and ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God said, let light shine out of darkness. For God who said, excuse me, let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of God's glory displayed in the faith of Christ. This summer, our leadership team here at Southwest, we've been hard at work praying and wrestling with what's God's call for us as a church. What's God's specific vision for us as a church as we continue to pursue what we believe is God's mission, we believe the mission that Jesus gives us, that of following him, following Jesus, making disciples. But we've been praying and asking ourselves, what is God's vision for Southwest during the next three years as we really give ourselves to that mission? To try to help unpack that, we've been even looking at some demographic Studies trying to determine how many people live within proximity of this church building. In fact, we drew a circle and we did a five-mile radius just to see who our audience here and who we can impact. Honestly, as we've leaned into that, I've been really humbled and, and really challenged by, by the opportunity that lies at our very doorstep to impact lives and and to teach and talk to people about Jesus. This week, I had another opportunity to sit down with some some local leaders in our community. In fact, I was invited to be a part of a, a focus group 
where a group of people from this community and surrounding communities gathered together and we talked about what are some of the challenges of this region? What are some of the needs to identify? In fact, we literally put it up on the wall to identify what are the needs and how can leaders make a difference? And what I'm seeing as that picture gets painted is that even though we live in the midst of some beautiful homes in some affluent suburbs, I'm seeing some real dark challenges that face this region. Challenges of struggling marriages. Challenges of overcommitted families that are just too busy. Battles of individuals and how it impacts families of addictions to drugs and alcohol. Unfortunately, far too many suicide attempts, even by young people. Children and teens that are overstimulated by technology, so much so that they're not connecting with their parents, with their siblings and their peers. As we just started making a list of all the challenges out there, honestly, I, I found myself being a bit overwhelmed. But it brought me back to, okay, this is what we've been talking about in our leadership. What are the needs out there? And how can we as a church make a difference? We're wrestling with that. We're praying about that. I want to invite you to join us in praying that God will make it clear how we can make a difference. I do believe from this text we get some insight that the answer is not in simply coming up with some new program or some new fangled snazzy approach. But I believe that as a church, we've got to be determined to hold up the light of God's word and the glory of his son, Jesus Christ. Paul says, we've renounced secret and shameful ways. We must be resolved to preach Christ. And I believe as a church, that's what we must be resolved to as well. Now, with this as a backdrop, we get to the real heart of this chapter. As we see Paul's example of perseverance in the midst of some intense challenges, whatever caused them in his life. So our second observation is the importance of perseverance. Perseverance, if you're taking notes. In the movie, even in the preview, you saw that screen where the graphic flashed up on there. Survival is victory. You know, in the movie with this very intense battle that took place at Dunkirk, in a very real way for the British army, victory was found in just surviving so that they would be able to fight another day. You see, the movie starts with this scene of this huge crowd of soldiers. You find out later that it was both British and French soldiers. Uh, the, the guy said in the movie, and history bears us out, there were 400,000 of them surrounded and cornered at the beach of Dunkirk. 
The movie actually begins with a bit of a confusing opening description of this scene. So this is a public service announcement if you go see the movie because I found myself confused by this and, and I researched online. I, I am a nerd, okay? So because when I go see movies, you know, I get on Google later and I'm researching and, okay, what was true, what was historic, what wasn't true. I'm just that guy. I'm always trying to fact find. And uh, But in the movie, there, there's these three scenes, it shows the airplanes and it flashes up on the screen, battle in the air. And then next you see these ships that are coming up to the, to the beach to try to evacuate officers and it's, or soldiers, excuse me, it says battle in the sea. And so then you're thinking the next screen, it's going to say battle on the land or battle on the beach. But instead it says battle on the mole. And I'm going, mole? What's a mole? I was pretty sure it wasn't this furry creature that digs holes in the ground, but what, what is mole? So I had to look it up after the movie. A mole, in fact, in my research, I found out that one of the officers actually says it in the movie, but I think because of all the explosions, I missed it. But the, the, the word mole describes a large solid structure on a shore serving as a pier, breakwater, or causeway. Now, once I learned that, that made a lot of sense because that's how they were evacuating the soldiers. They, they would all line up on this pier and then ships would come and they would load the ship from the pier. Now, of course, I think they use that word also because there's a bit of a double meaning, but I won't give that part away because I don't want to ruin the movie for you. Now, what began to click for me during the 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 watching of the movie is that this very important battle which took place in the air and on the sea and on the beach was the backdrop for one of the most famous speeches from World War II history. I was familiar with the speech, but I didn't connect it to this battle. You see, the speech I'm talking about is a speech by Winston Churchill. It was delivered one week after the Battle of Dunkirk. And after watching the movie, this speech made a lot more sense. In fact, many people that believe that he was even trying to prompt the United States to get into the war by giving this speech so that you know what I'm talking about. Let's just listen to one minute of the speech right now. We shall go on to the end. We shall fight in France. We shall fight on the seas and oceans. We shall fight with growing confidence and growing strength in the air. We shall defend our island, whatever the cost may be. We shall fight on the beaches. We shall fight on the landing grounds. We shall fight in the fields and in the streets. We shall fight in the hills. We shall never surrender. And if, which I do not for a moment believe, this island or a large part of it were subjugated and starving, then our empire beyond the seas, armed and guarded by the British fleet, would carry on the struggle until, in God's good time, the new world, with all its power and might, steps forth to the rescue and the liberation of the old. For years I've been fascinated with Winston Churchill. I've learned one of the reasons he was able to help England survive some really dark difficult times 
was that in his own life, he had experienced at times a very intense battle with depression. And from his own personal determination of what he had learned in his own life with depression to never, never quit, to never surrender. Churchill was able in turn to inspire an entire nation and in many ways an entire world. The Apostle Paul put it this way in 2 Corinthians 4. He says, but we have this treasures in jar of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. We are hard-pressed on every side but not crushed, perplexed but not in despair, persecuted but not abandoned, struck down but not destroyed. We always carry around in our body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. For we who are alive are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake so that his life may also be revealed in our mortal body. So then death is at work in us, but life is at work in you. You see, sometimes in life, when it gets tough, the victory is found in simply not giving up, in never, never giving up, in never surrendering. When we find ourselves facing challenges in the financial realm, we might feel hard-pressed, but it's important to remember that with God's help, we aren't crushed. In our marriages and families, when we're perplexed why the relationships aren't functioning better, let's make sure that we don't give in to despair. When we're trying to share our faith with those that we love, whether it be in our family or maybe people at work that we have befriended and we're trying to share with them what we believe and yet we feel rebuffed, possibly even persecuted, let's remember that we aren't abandoned as Jesus promised that he will always be with us. As we feel struck down by temptation, fears, or personal weaknesses, let's realize that we aren't destroyed, but that God is ever-present to lift us up. And although it might seem a bit of a dark ending to what Paul says, though death is at work in us, but life is at work in you, he then launches into what I believe is an incredible message of hope. Listen to what he says next in verse 13. He said, it is written, I believe, therefore I have spoken. Since we have the same spirit of faith, we also believe and therefore speak. Because we know that the one who raised the Lord Jesus from the dead will also raise us with Jesus and present us with you to himself. All this is for your benefit. So the grace that is reaching more and more people may cause thanksgiving to overflow to the glory of God. I love this. I love how Paul works his way through talking about the darkness of this world and even some of the personal struggles he has to say, listen, I'm reminded of the core of my faith and that's the death and resurrection of Jesus. The last couple of weeks, and some of you might think, well, this, you seem kind of slow on this, but the last couple of weeks, I've been trying to figure out what to put on the walls in my office. 
Now, some of you say, well, you've been in your office for months. Yeah, I know, but uh, I'm kind of slow to getting stuff up on the walls. You've got to remember, I'm the, the guy that used to teach high school math that one of the biggest criticisms I ever got from a principal was that he said, do you ever think about putting something up on your walls, you know, like a poster or something? You see, I was just so busy trying to help the kids solve for X, I never thought about what they were looking at, just blank walls. And so as time went on, I thought, I got to put something up on my walls. And so I tried to think about what other people on staff here put on their walls. And, you know, Larry's got a guitar mounted on his wall, but I thought, well, that, that, that won't be me. That's not me. You know, I'm not musically inclined there. You know, Andrew, he's got his diplomas hanging on his wall. And I thought, that's pretty cool, but I'm not even sure where my diplomas are. They've been packed away for so long. You know, Eric, he's got these, these cool modern posters up on his wall with all these weird lights. And I thought, that's cool, but that's, that's not me. So then I thought, well, I wonder what Tammy's got on her walls. And I wasn't even sure. And I walked down there yesterday. I had to check it out. And, and there's some photos, but there's some girly stuff. And I thought, okay, that's not me. So then I, you know, I even leaned into my family. I said, what should, what should I put up on my walls at my office? And finally, we came up with something. We, we took some of the photos I took when I went to Israel, and we enlarged them, made them into canvas, and put them up on the wall. In fact, right across from my office were these two pictures. I mean, right across from my desk. One of them is the garden tomb that uh, was really moving to go see and visit. The other one is a plaque that's inside the garden tomb there in Jerusalem that says, he is not here, for he has risen. I thought, I want that constantly before me as I work on messages, as I work on things I'm trying to do here at Southwest, because I want to never forget the basis for my hope. It's in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And I put it where I did because, you know, across from my desk is there's a couple chairs. And if I'm sitting there talking to an individual that just feels hopeless, or I'm sitting with a couple that they're just ready to cash it in, they're ready to give up on their marriage, and they feel hopeless, I want to be able to look right over their heads and see the reason for the hope and point them to the power of God that's available to make all the difference in their lives. I love the fact that we have a hope that can sustain us no matter what life might throw at us. You know, in the, in the movie previews, we saw another graphic. It said, hope is a weapon. I thought about how would we apply that to our life? I thought, well, hope is an ammunition. It's ammunition for the battle or it's fuel for the future. So Paul concludes this chapter, which what seemed to begin such a dismal and dark outlook, and he ends it with these powerful words. In 2 Corinthians 4, verse 16, he says, therefore, because of the resurrection, because of the hope in the power of God, he says, we do not lose heart. Though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but what is unseen. Since what is seen is temporary, 
But what is unseen is eternal. How's that for an encouraging close to this passage and to this message? In the midst of the reality of our physical aging and and the challenges of this life and of this culture, this passage reminds us that our hope is not in that which we see, but it's in that which we can't see. Yes, outwardly, we might be personally wasting away, but inwardly, we can be renewed day after day because of the victory that's found in Jesus Christ. Paul goes on to say, he says, these light and momentary troubles are nothing, no matter what you're facing. I don't know what you've been facing lately, but no matter what it is, Paul says they're light and momentary compared to the eternal glory waiting for those who have their trust and hope in Christ for salvation. So here's the key for all of us. No matter what we're going through now, no matter what we face in the future, fix your eyes on the unseen. So I want to ask you, what are you fixing your eyes on? Have you been focused on the immediate? Have you been focused on that particular challenge or that particular struggle? Or are you fixing your eyes on that which you cannot see, that which is eternal? One of the many benefits of us regularly participating in communion is this spiritual discipline forces us to take our eyes off the immediate and to fix our eyes on that which our faith is based, to fix our eyes on the unseen. You see, we worship a God we can't see, but we believe he's real. We're following a Savior that is no longer physically on earth, neither are his bones. But because of his death on the cross and the resurrection that followed, we, although we cannot see him, we believe he's still alive. You see, the reason for our hope is that Jesus came back from the dead. And yet before his resurrection, his love led him to be crucified on our behalf. Now, throughout this message paralleling Dunkirk, we've described the importance of never, never giving up the faith, never surrendering in life. And yet, I want to share with you a wrinkle here at the end of our message. There's a sense when we come face to face with the cross that we do surrender up to the one that will see us through no matter what we might be facing in the present. You see, we don't surrender to circumstances. We don't surrender to challenges. But we surrender up to the one that will empower us to see us through. So during this time of communion, let's reflect on Jesus' love. And let's surrender our hearts to him and him alone. And then through that surrender, he will empower us to live with confidence and hope for the future. Let's pray together. Dear God, thank you. Thank you for this time that we could just pause and fix our eyes on the unseen. We believe you're real, God, even though we can't see you. We believe your son is alive, even though he's no longer here physically. But Father, we believe he's here spiritually as we take communion, remembering him.
So as we take the bread, remembering his body, as we take the cup, remembering his blood that was shed, help us be in awe of what he did for us and help us surrender our hearts to him and him alone. It's in his name we pray. Thank you for listening to Southwest Church Teaching Ministries. We are a community of people committed to following Jesus and making disciples. Please join us for one of our three weekly gatherings, Saturdays at 5.30 p.m., Sundays at 9.30 a.m. and 11.15 a.m.